Well, good morning, y'all. It is February 1st, 2004, and as if it's any great surprise to anyone, it's Super Bowl Sunday. This morning's message is going to have an underdog theme, and I thought about playing that audio adrenaline song, Underdog, just because I love it, but I find myself totally unable to sing to any of it, so uh, I don't think that was... It may have been great for y'all in worship, but I don't know how well it would have done for me. Everybody in the world is innately drawn to an underdog. We love to see people come from impossible odds, to come from behind to win. This reflected in our culture through movies, through sports, through our literature. It's even in our sinful things, like gambling. You think about it. If a game is close, it doesn't pay as much to pick the winner. But if the odds are unbelievably stacked against somebody and you pick the underdog, it's rewarding if they win, right? You would rather, and none of you, I'm sure, have tremendous gambling habits in here, but you would rather bet on the horse that is 50 to 1 odds because if you bet a dollar, you get back 50. At least that's how I hear that works. (laughs) Our society is set up in such a way that it both discourages the underdog, it's pessimistic about it, but, there's, but it also encourages it because there's something innate in us that is drawn towards that theme. You look at our major movies, you know, things that my mom just mouthed it. You know, Rocky. Rocky was a movie in the 70s that the whole story is about some guy that nobody thought could even stay in the ring, and he did. And if I remember correctly, I don't even think he won the fight. He just stayed in the ring. The, the movie itself, the making of it, nobody wanted to make the movie. The actor had to mortgage his house to go do that. We're innately drawn to those kind of stories. What is, what is neat about that is Ecclesiastes speaks about eternity being within the hearts of men and women. God placed something in you from birth that would be drawn towards an underdog-type story because that's exactly what the gospel is. This morning, you're going to get a little bit of kind of the cliff notes. you know. But the exam will be on the whole book. So you need to get the cliff notes this morning. Go back and use it as a framework to apply to the rest of the book. Y'all turn with me to Ephesians. We're going, to be, we're going to start in Ephesians 3. I want to encourage you to... I really, really... Let me say it this way. I've been in the Lord now about 11 years. And I've been part of services where people were healed of AIDS, where babies were healed, where people were filled with the Holy Ghost, all kind of miraculous things. And I've been excited... Some as large as 50,000 people and some as small as five. And I never had any more sense that we were on the verge of something powerful fixing to happen than I do in these last few weeks. And I just, I encourage you who are faithful to be here when there is very little in the natural to draw you. God rewards that. I remember standing outside of a church because we were locked out with a handful of people. It was 36 or 7 degrees and it was raining. And the Lord spoke to me then. And showed me, these are the kind he'll call. Are the kind that aren't there for the stained glass. 
They're not there for the pews. They're not there because of the degrees behind the preacher. They're there because they believe it's a work of God. That's the, the kind that he's drawing to this place. And I'm excited about it. You praise him, baby. Y'all in Ephesians? Ephesians 3, starting around verse 7. It says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of His power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. There was a mystery that God had that He kept hidden for ages past that He's now revealing in us. Verse 10 says His purpose. It says, His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom or the many-sided wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms according to His eternal purpose which He accomplished in Jesus Christ our Lord. In Him and through faith in Him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Y'all, God is using His church to display something to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms. You can't read that without getting that. Or at least if you, if you have read it and skipped over that, you shouldn't. There are rulers and authorities in the heavens. And they are watching mankind for a purpose. God has put us on display for a reason. A great drama, if you will. It's like, have you ever watched a movie and learned something from it? Our lives are a movie that the heavenlies are learning something from. That's not a concept we think much about in Christianity. We tend to think about, sweetheart, you can go with Bethany in the study, and it'd be like a cry room. It's, okay. Because we tend to think of the Bible, how it affects our life. We think of uh, what Jesus is doing in our life. In fact, most of the gospel being preached anywhere right now is pretty much how God can bless you, and that's it. And we lose sight of a bigger purpose. And this morning we're going to concentrate on that bigger purpose a little bit and then we'll close with how it applies to your life. Stay in Ephesians and flip to Ephesians 2. And this would be Ephesians 2, 1. The first point is that we're on display for a purpose before the rulers of heavenly realms. Okay? If you're taking notes, that'll be your first point. Ephesians 2, 1 is going to mention a kingdom of the air. It says, As for you... You were dead in your transgressions and sin, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. What spirit is at work in those who are disobedient? The spirit of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. So point number one is God has put you on display before the heavenly authorities. Point number two is that at one time in your life, you were dead, according to God, dead in your sin and totally controlled by the ruler of the kingdom of the air. You know, if you want to know what an author intends to prove, a literary work that has some value to it will usually, in the very first few chapters, lay some kind of framework for what the story is about. Some kind of hint 
to get you to read the rest of the book. They tell you if you write an essay that your opening paragraph should basically tell somebody what's in it for them, why they should read the rest of it. You know, sometimes you come right out and state what you want to prove. In the beginning of our book, in the beginning of the Bible, we see something very much like that. Turn to Genesis 1, and we're going to begin to see a stage being set. From Ephesians, you picked up that there's a ruler of the prince of the air that we used, when we were dead, we walked in obedience to him. That God has got us on display, his church on display, to show something, to prove something about how deep his wisdom is to these heavenly authorities. Now in Genesis 1, I'm going to start in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. I taught on Genesis many times, not necessarily to this group, but I've been involved in it for years. So I'm, I take some things for granted here. I'm not going to prove them this morning. I just want you to know. When the Bible speaks of the very beginning, God creating the heavens and the earth, that's absolutely true. But the creation story picks up with the words, Now the earth was formless and void. It's my belief based on everything that I've read in the Bible that in the very beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That the story though that we're picking up with is after something has happened. And he says, now the earth was formless and void. He didn't create it formless and void. In fact, just some points to think about so you don't get caught up in what uh, I would call a gap theory if, if, if you want to call it that. Water was not created. It was already existent on the earth. Darkness was not created in any of the six days of creation. It was already on the earth. The Bible refers to waters, plural, different kinds, on the earth before the six days of creation. Those things existed because something was here prior to the six days of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and void. You could go into all kind of very deep arguments into the Hebrew about why now the earth was can be translated the earth had become or was becoming or all of those tenses are correct. But for all intents and purposes, what we want to look at is something that happens on the second day. But reading, starting with the first day. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. God's going to comment on his creation as he is creating these things. As he's speaking them into existence, he makes comments about them. On every single day, day one, day three, day four, five, and six, he says things were good or they were very good. One or the other. But on day two that we're fixing to get to, I need to quit saying the word fixing, it's not a word. On day two that we we'll quickly read about. He doesn't say it's good. He says it's so. And it's, it's necessary to point this out, and you'll see why, and I'll tie that together. Um, verse 5. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Verse 6 begins the second day. And God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. 
And there was evening and there was morning the second day. What may seem insignificant at first glance, that God said something was good on every day. And on the sixth day when he created man, he said, oh, it's very good. On the second day, he simply said it was so. That's because this is the day where he took the waters on the earth and separated them from the waters in the heavens to create what we're calling an atmosphere. In that atmosphere, or air, would be the uh, battleground for the centuries to follow. There is a prince who has dominion over the kingdom of the air, Ephesians said. All of us once were dead and walked in obedience to him. The reason God does not say that it's good, he also doesn't call darkness good in the first day, is because when we pick up with this creation, or some might even say recreation, but I'm just going to call it the six days of creation, he does a couple things. He makes a distinction between light and darkness. Then he creates immediately an area that is a battleground, and he calls it so. Very few of you have ever been overwhelmed because a demon showed up in front of you, forced you to do something. There are some that would claim that, but the truth is no power of the enemy has any hold on you except that which you let it have on you. All of the battle that occurs for Christians occurs right between your ears. It occurs in this atmosphere. There are things that speak to you that you are enticed by and begin to be drawn off to. That battleground, God said, and it's so. It's kind of like if two men uh, said, I'm going to meet you in that parking lot. The other one said, oh, yeah, well, I'll be there. And they made no further comment about it. That's exactly the kind of attitude that's conveyed in this. God created it, and then he said, and it's so. In other words, let's get it on. He doesn't say it's good. He doesn't say it's bad. He just said it there. With that in mind... Many things evidently happened prior to Genesis 1-2. But we want to concentrate on what we know. Ephesians 3 says God is using us to display his wisdom to rulers. Ephesians 2 says that we used to be controlled by those rulers and that they were in the kingdom of the air. Genesis 1 teaches us that the second day the kingdom of the air was created and it was so. The stage has been set and now we want to examine our very first battle. You remember the whole theme of this is underdog. So in Genesis 3, we're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to see how the very first interaction occurs between the kingdom of the air, the prince of the air, and mankind, and why. Y'all in Genesis 3? I've got to quit closing my Bible. In Genesis 3... What has occurred between the scripture we read and now is God has given mankind, man and his helper, a woman, a man with a womb, an equal to man, just with a different purpose. Uh, her, her job was to bring forth offspring. But literally called, woe man comes from man with womb. It was never intended that this woman would be uh, some kind of second class citizen. That's good because I've got mostly women here today. But as the vice president over all creation. Adam first, Eve second. And her name's not even Eve yet. But God has given this man and his assistant dominion over the entire planet. 
Well, there is a power that was already at work in the earth before the creation that caused something to happen so that there was water on the earth, there was darkness over the earth, and God was hovering. And he had to make a distinction between light and darkness. Already some kind of rebellion had occurred. The Bible doesn't go into it. We don't know. You could only theorize. I believe I know a lot of what happened, but it's, it's extra biblical. There's no reason for us to have to place any faith in that. You just know that our Bible picks up on the scene where judgments occurred. There's water everywhere. The earth is formless and void or had become formless and void, and now God begins to do something. Well, never do you see in those six days of creation some uh, fallen angel that people call Lucifer created. You don't see any of those kind of things. And I don't think his name's Lucifer, and I'm not sure he was a fallen angel. Okay, I'm, I'm just telling you that right. I sure don't think he was ever an archangel. You know, maybe Ezekiel teaches he was a, a cherub. Maybe. All right, but that, that's all totally debatable. What you see, though, is this first interaction. God has said, man, you have dominion over the earth. You are made in my image. In other words, you look like God. And here are some rules. I'm going to put you in a garden. I want you to work it. Uh, you're going to be fruitful. You're going to multiply. You're going to cover the whole earth. You can do anything you want, but don't eat from this one tree. Okay? This tree represents the knowledge of good and evil or your ability to choose that which is wise. Good from evil. The reason God withheld that from man is God wanted man to depend upon him for that choice. You're able to know everything that you want to know except it's God's job to choose for you what is wise, good from evil. Okay, picking up then in three one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Is crafty bad? Not at all. It means that this serpent had some natural talents that other animals didn't have. And when you think of the animal kingdom at this time, you need to understand, evidently some animals had the power of speech. And even in Genesis 2, when God passed all the animals before Adam so that he could show him that they came in pairs of two and a suitable helper was not there for Adam, it could not have been as absurd as you might think of squirrels and rabbits passing before a man now. Man had some kind of relationship with animals. Uh, an echo of this might be the way that you love your cat or the way that you love your dog. But when there was not a fallen nature, when man had never eaten an animal and there was no fear of men and death had never entered the picture, there was some kind of camaraderie between man and the animal kingdom that is greater than what we know today. So the most crafty of all of the animals, he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The first thing that this prince of the air will always do to you is call into question your knowledge of God's instruction. In other words, God tells you to do something or not to do something. The first thing he does is try to introduce doubt to you about whether or not you should be sure God really wants you to do that. Did God really say? Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. I don't know whether God really said that to her or not. The scripture sure does not record that she could not touch it. It looks to me as if kind of panicked, put on the spot. She does well at first. She responds with the freedom she has. Let's not talk about what we can't do. Let me tell you what God said I can do. You know, he's not a bad God. He said, I can eat from any tree I want. But he did say, don't eat from that one. 
And uh, don't even touch it. The reason that that can be bad to add to the Word of God like that is what happens if you go touch it and you don't feel any different? God never said don't touch it. He said don't eat it, right? So you kind of get your foot in the water there. You say, well, I touched it. Nothing seems different. Maybe if I eat it, nothing will be different too. You ought never add to God's commands. Most of the people that are outside of the church today are outside of the church for one reason. What Christianity has represented as God's word to them is not true. You know, I grew up in a church that tried to squeeze the dinosaurs into these six days of creation. You know, that tried to make the earth only 6,000 years old. The Bible does not say either one of those things. But they found it necessary to not only insinuate that it said it, but insist upon it and try to find Well, all that is is food for the skeptic. We need to never say that God's word says something that it doesn't. Now, if it's debatable or you don't understand, say so. But don't be dogmatic and don't insist that the Bible says something that it doesn't. Don't make assumptions about it. First thing the devil does is he calls in to question your knowledge of God's word. The second thing that he does is coming up. Verse 4, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. The second thing he does to you is he subtly begins to contradict what God has told you. Oh, no, you won't die. What God really meant or the right way you should interpret that is. You understand what I'm saying? You do this when you want to sin. Let's say for a second that God has told you not to buy a car. That's an example I've been using a lot lately just because it comes to mind. You, you feel no peace about it. You know you shouldn't. But what happens in your mind, in the soulish realm, your spirit knows you ought not do this, your flesh wants it, the soul's caught between the two, and you begin the great debate. Well, a car would be good for a lot of things. I could take people to church with me. I'll never be late. You know, all, all of the, the justification begins to come. And before long, you've worked out what God said you shouldn't do into a reason that you should do it. All sin follows that same, same category. And I'm not speaking to anybody's new car in here. There are several new cars. I'm talking about something in my life, honestly. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. The third thing that the devil does, aside from calling into question your knowledge of God's word and then subtly contradicting it, is he puts something in it for you. There's something that appeals to you. Uh, does anybody have a theory as to what his motivation is for any of this? You know, why on earth is the, is the devil using a snake to mess with the people at all? You know, I mean, why is he not just happy in the kingdom of the air and let them be happy on the earth? I personally believe it's because they looked like God. I, one time in high school, this may surprise some of you, had a gentleman a little older than me, a uh, little more aggressive, a little stronger, a little all of those things, give me such a bad beating publicly in front of everybody that I had to go to the hospital and that I don't even remember that day. I mean, I remember parts of that day, but... From the time we stepped out onto uh, a parking lot 
I don't even remember it. It hit me so hard that I have no memory of the event. But you know what? He had a little brother. What I may not have been able to do to him, I sure could do to his little brother. His little brother was at my school. This guy had graduated from school. Now, I didn't because God prevented it and circumstances prevented it. But more than one time, I thought, "Uh uh-huh, well, the same beating he gave me, I'll give to his brother. His brother was my age. You know, wasn't as big and as strong as the other guy. That, I believe, is somewhat of the motivation behind this enemy. He sees something that looks like God but does not seem to possess the same strength. And he begins probing her first. And he finds out, she's susceptible. I was there. I heard what God said to her. She's already adding to it. And he begins to work. He begins to fish and see. She does see that it's desirable for gaining wisdom. I see some interest there. And he begins to pull at her. And before long, this rebellious ruler of the air sees that he can exploit these things that look like God. Now, you can carry that into a whole other theory about maybe there was a creation here that he was in charge of, that God judged with water, all kind of things. People call that a pre-Adamite theory about things that were on the earth before God or before uh, Adam. It's not necessary that we go there. It's just that his motivation seems to have something to do with corrupting these things that look like men. And what did he tell the woman? You can become like God. Evidently, that's what he wanted to do. Okay, y'all with me so far? On the idea of desirable for gaining wisdom, and I promise we're going to get back into the underdog theme, turn to 1 John. This is what Eve's response should have been to the enemy. Okay? And the reason I'm telling you this is there are things in your life that will seem desirable to you but are not the will of God for you. And you need to just set some of these boundary markers for yourself. It's going to be in 1 John. You can get to the book of Revelation and hang a slight left. It's the easiest way to find 1 John. 2. Verse 15. This just kind of sums it up. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, get this, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. If Eve had loved the Father so much that she said, you know what? That very well may make me just like Him, but He still, He asked me not to do it. That craving would have passed right away. God would have given her the strength to move on beyond it. And she would have lived forever. Now, First John is writing this 4,100 years after that event occurred. And it still applies to us. Because something's going to happen that gives us the right to revert back to where Adam and Eve were before they sinned. If only we act a certain way. Before we go further into this knowledge of good and evil and what wisdom is and how it works, turn to Proverbs. And look, David, Jennifer, y'all turn to Proverbs 14, 12. You three on the first row, turn to Proverbs 16, 25.
Usually if somebody has you turn to two different scriptures, two different places in the Bible, you'd be reading different things, right? David, read out loud that Proverbs 14:12. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Now, anybody on the first row, what does Proverbs 16:25 say? Wow. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. You know, if a teacher says something to you more than once, it's because they're trying to emphasize it. If something comes up repetitively, it's a point worth taking, Right? I mean, you, you were all in school at one time, and if a teacher said something multi- multiple times, you knew, oh, that's probably going to be on the test. Something that you should know that Adam and Eve experienced is there is a way that seems right to all of us. In the end, it leads to death. Now, we were once in death and subject to a ruler of the air. We have now stepped outside of death, and we, we will get there, but there's still a way that seems right to you that leads you back to death. This morning, everything that we're going to look at is death on one hand and life on the other. The whole solution, first, the whole problem that comes upon mankind is that we were given a wisdom that led us into death. When she and when the two people, Adam and Eve, gained for themselves the wisdom to know right from wrong, it led them straight to death. That same power is at work in us. It's been at work in every human being from the beginning. And the gospel offers a solution for it. The problem is death. The solution is life. And we'll, we'll look at that. But before you, we go back to Genesis, I want you to hear this in 1 Corinthians. Y'all can turn there or not. It's 1 Corinthians 17 on this idea of wisdom, knowledge of good and evil. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ should be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to we who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand a miraculous sign, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Get this verse. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. If within you is a wisdom that leads to death, within you there is this other way that may seem foolish, but it leads to life. The cross is foolishness. The ways of God are foolish. They will have you buy 50 chairs when there's three people in a church. The foolishness that is in you will have you stand up and tell your entire workplace something that may cause you to be fired. See, the wisdom of the wise, the worldly wisdom, will always tell you the practical way to do things, the right way. We, sometimes as Christians, we disguise 
what is worldly wisdom under the title practical. Now, I just, I just want to give you some, some practical wisdom, brother. I know God told you this, but it's not a whole lot different than, than what the serpent said to Eve. I know God said that, but what you don't understand is we need to be very careful that we make a distinction between the two. This is on the same note as Isaac and Ishmael that we taught last week. We've been building faith, building understanding. This morning we're going to talk about the power of God to walk in life and how this is an underdog theme. Eve first should have turned and said, oh, I love the Father too much to do that. I want to live forever. Secondly, she should have realized that what was desirable for gaining wisdom would cause death because God said it would. The way out of that is letting Jesus' instruction be a substitute for the wisdom of the world for us. We are throwing out the old wisdom and taking in the new as Christians. That's how you're born again. It's when you give up your operation of your life, your standard mode of operation for a different one that seems stupid to everyone else. And if it doesn't seem stupid, you're not walking closely enough to what Jesus is telling you to do. Because remember, we're being paraded around before all the rulers of the air. They're all mocking, going, what on earth? This is not unlike Jericho. Think about Jericho for a minute. They're walking around an army, right? Walking around a fortified city, but doing nothing. How foolish is that? But it was for a purpose. It was because everybody who was watching saw it's by the power of God that these people overcame. It was not the strength of their arm. We're being paraded before the heavenlies so that God's wisdom might be shown. Ultimately, it'll speak one resounding message. Don't mess with God. Don't rebel. Because He's able to take something weaker than you, something that is just built like Him, but weaker than you, and overcome you. Don't ever rebel against God. That's what the message is. Go back to Genesis. We're going to read Genesis 3.8, and then we'll quit switching around so much. I know you all know a lot of this stuff, and I hate to lay the groundwork over and over, but part of, part of this walk is not only understanding salvation, but understanding enough of the Bible's big picture to be able to convey it as a story to people. You know, this idea of just get saved, re, uh, believe Jesus died, he rose again, repeat after me, and now you're a Christian, signed, sealed, delivered, uh, just go on about your merry life, is a fairy tale that people just cannot swallow. He said, well, am I talking about lowering the gospel? No, I'm talking about preaching a real gospel. Something that includes more of the Bible story than three verses out of Romans taken out of context. We need to be able... I talked to a missionary this morning, a missionary to Kosovo, and he was a Korean gentleman. When he communicates the gospel to them, it needs to be something that addresses the needs within them. It needs to be the real gospel. It cannot just be a nursery rhyme at the end of a track. Have you ever had a warm, fuzzy experience that didn't last? You know, I was in churches my whole life. I ran down an altar. I was baptized a bunch before I got saved. One time with a guy who had purple hair. He got the, all the baptismal waters purple, you know. I was baptized in a couple different churches. I was not born again. I had emotional experiences before God and was not born again because I never fundamentally understood one thing. I'm unable to change and I need help changing from God. It was that basic, but I could, I could quote the Roman road to salvation. I could quote much of the Bible to you. I could explain from a theological standpoint how Jesus was a substitute for you. 
I could explain all of those things and was not born again. We need to be able to share the gospel in a story form. And I'm telling you that God has placed in every person a desire to be drawn towards this underdog. So let's develop that story a little bit. We're back to the beginning. And uh, we're in Genesis 3, starting in verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? Sin will always cause you to have a natural aversion to God. The same way that darkness runs from this room when you turn on a light switch, everything in you when you're in sin wants to run from God. As Christians, if you blow it, the first thing that goes through your mind is, I'm not going to church Sunday. I will not be there Wednesday. I don't want to talk to so-and-so because it brings in you these, this piercing feeling. You know you're wrong. So the world loves its darkness. It runs to it and it hides from the light. We cannot be that way. It's kind of like, have you ever had a cut or something? You knew you needed to pour alcohol or iodine or whatever it is you needed to put on the cut. And you knew it burned, but you needed to do it. After a while, that burns not so bad because you know it's good for you. Conviction can be like that. At first, when you experience it, oh, man, I, I hate this. I want to run from it. But eventually, when you find out it's for your good, you run into it. You know, I've gotten to where I love for people to correct me, especially Christians who love the Lord. Because I see it as healing to me. I see it as revealing flaw that needs to be fixed. Sin causes you to want to hide from God. He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit of the tree and I ate it. The other thing that sin causes you to do is refuse to accept responsibility. And we've covered this a lot. I wish more Christians could just stand up and say, I screwed up, I was wrong. But instead, we blame it on God, we blame it on others, we blame it on anybody but ourselves. God comes to Adam because he's the one that, that was over everything. And Adam blames it on his vice president. And you're going to find out she blames it on the creation, which was under her. The snake didn't have anybody left to blame it on. He didn't understand about this prince of the air that was working through him. And God would not have judged him at that time anyway, because this is the beginning of the story. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. I think it's funny how he kind of lays the blame at God's feet too. The woman you put here. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity. Enmity. I always had a hard time saying this word. It means warfare. I will put warfare between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. It was said, if you eat from this tree, you will die. Now what's being told her is there's going to be, actually told to the snake, somebody who comes from her offspring, and there's going to be warfare between the two of you. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is the first prophecy in the Bible about Jesus. He will be stricken on the heel. If you get bitten by a snake on the heel, what happens to you? 
you die. You know, if a poisonous snake bites you, you are supposed to die. That would be the natural consequence of being bitten by a snake, right? Jesus did die. What was supernatural about it is he also crushed the snake's head. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. That's a prophecy about Jesus and the church, but we don't have time for that today. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, or King James says, for your sake. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and dust you will return. None of that sounds particularly good. The snake's going to crawl on his belly. He's going to be the lowest of the animals. The uh, woman is going to have pain in her childbearing. She's going to have a husband that rules over her. The man is going to strive at the plow everywhere he goes. There's going to be thorns and thistles, and the creation's going to resist him. Does any of that sound like good news? What would you think then? You would think Adam would be pretty bummed, right? He had more of his noodle working than you and I do, and I'm glad. I really am glad. He had not been corrupted by generation upon generation of sin in the way that we have. Listen to what he says. Adam named his wife Eve. Because she would become the mother of all the living. He heard everything that was negative. And you know what he picked out of that negative thing? He said, wow, my wife's going to produce one who will crush the head of the enemy that brought death. She's Eve. She's the mother of the living. He'd been content to call her woman before that. But in the midst of curse, in the midst of death, he hears a promise of God. Somebody's going to crush the head of the enemy. There's going to be a war and we're going to win. Now, I'll be honest, I don't, if I didn't have the other chapters, I wouldn't see all of that. Well, that's any good story. I mean, if you knew how, how the plot was going to unfold in the first chapter, it wouldn't be a very good book, would it? But what happens is you have through prophecy a, something introduced here that the rest of the Bible develops. What you need to know is that the Bible is the story of the warfare between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And for this purpose, death has entered the world and mankind needs to enter into life. That's the basic story of the Bible. In the midst of curse, death, and loss, we have, and the loss of the first battle, the first interaction with mankind and his enemy results in defeat. We have a promise concerning the end of the book. But what happens in the very next generation? Who were their children? Who were their first two children? Cain and Abel. So they birthed these children with excitement. Somebody's going to come from the woman that is going to crush the head of the enemy. Right? They watch their kids like I watch my kids, hoping for great things. And this thing gets told to Cain. Cain, why is your face so downcast? Sin is outside your door. And it seeks to have you but you must master it. Did he? No. He became a murderer. He killed his brother. So the first battle with Eve, the enemy wins. The next battle with Cain, the enemy wins. And you know what? This goes on for 4,000 years. And here's the big one. You say, well, I can't help it. I'm this way. 
My father was like this and my grandfather. We've all been coal miners. We've all been blacksmiths, so I'm just going to be a blacksmith, right? Sixty generations, sixty went by. And in every generation, every bright man of God that showed promise for 4,000 years lost the battle whenever he faced the enemy. Cain kills Abel. In Methuselah's day, I'm just kind of marching through history. In Methuselah's day, the world was so corrupt that God was going to wipe out everybody. So that when Noah shows up, he has to begin the earth again. And Noah had how many sons? And one of them turned out to be wicked, didn't he? I mean, you see that the battle continues to rage and roll through. Abraham. Abraham gets a promise. There's going to be offspring from you, buddy. What's Abraham do? Yes. Two kinds of offspring, right? And the prophecy over Ishmael we learned last week, his hand would be against all of his brothers and their hand against him. That's the continuation of this warfare. You go a couple generations from Abraham and you've got two twins, Isaac and Esau. Another example of those two seeds working through history. One God loved, the other he hated because one was carnal and earthly minded and the other was spiritual and wanted spiritual blessings from God. Move right on down to Moses. You know, Moses was a great man of God. He did a lot of great things. He also failed in the face of the enemy. He, he became a murderer. You know, we act like that was before Christ or like, like with us, like it's okay because that was B.C. Moses was in covenant with God from birth and he murdered somebody. More, more than that, he went on and did great for much of his life. But a few key times he let God down. God showed that he had flaw for a reason. You move on from Moses, you get to the time of David. David was declared with power to be a man after God's own heart. And yet we know how badly he screwed up. He produced conspirators. He produced uh, children that slept with his wives. He, he murdered a man and was in adultery. The Bible makes it very clear that every generation, as much as people shine for God, they also were subject to the enemy. They never were able to win. You get all the way down to the end of Israel's history, at least biblical history, to Ezra and Nehemiah. These guys did awesome things before God, and yet they did many things God would not approve of. For 4,000 years, the development of the underdog story began to happen. You know, I don't think everybody in here knows who Hulk Hogan is, huh? Mom, if you don't, I'll tell you later. <laughs> I don't think there was ever a wrestling match that this guy was in who was the most popular professional wrestler of my, my generation. I don't think he was ever in a single match where the storyboard was not drawn in the same exact way. He wrestles. He's being beaten. He's on the canvas. The referee picks up the hand to see if he's still conscious, and the hand drops. And he picks up the hand again. And the hand drops. And he picks up the hand the third time and it starts to drop. And just before it hits the canvas, uh-oh, uh-oh, there's still life in him. And he comes back and wins the match. Yeah, we all laugh. You know what? 93,000 people watched one of these matches one time. The largest indoor sporting event ever. Now, I'm not here preaching the professional wrestling gospel. What I'm telling you is there is something in us that is drawn towards this kind of story. You know, probably the most popular Western of all time is Shane. It would not be a good story if the guy shows up and beats all the bad guys in the first scene. 
God allowed this to play out over 60 generations. Him setting up men that looked like Him, that at times acted like Him, had power like Him, but they all fell to the enemy and succumbed to death. Every one of them. He did this for a reason. And it's not just building anticipation. Remember, we are on display for the heavens. They got bolder and bolder in the rebellion towards God. They got more and more aggressive because everything they did, they seemed to get away with. The devil did not come down and confront Eve personally. He used a snake. Did, did the devil get judged for that? No. The snake did. He, he had a patsy, if you will. He put it off on. The devil influenced Cain to kill Abel. Is there anything written about Satan being accused for that? No, not at all. Cain was. He used men to kill other men throughout history. And he was never brought on the carpet before God about it. So much so that in the book of Job, you see him show up with the rest of the angels. You know, hey, how y'all? <laughs> and no inference at all that this guy's on the wrong team. His name means accuser. It, he's just the prosecuting attorney in heaven. Now, God knows he's a sleazebag. And probably most of the angels do too because they seem working against God. But for whatever reason, God chooses not to expose it. And He allows His people and His nation to be kicked around. Just like in a Rocky movie, you lose the first ten rounds. Or in any underdog story, those things seem to happen. You know what this does? It shows mankind we are utterly dependent upon His power. If it were left up to us, none of us could stand. And it shows the heavenly realm something. Oh yeah, you're a whole lot more powerful than these guys. You can do anything you want to them. But if God strengthens even one of them, if He fills even one of them with His presence, you will not stand. And they had not learned that lesson yet. They had been in open rebellion towards God and gotten away with it. Even when you see Nephilim in Genesis 6, come down, some kind of heavenly being, come down and have intercourse with women and produce these hybrid offsprings, the devil still was not accused. Only those angels who came down. Peter talks about it. He'd gotten away with it for 4,000 years. Jesus shows up with this message. It's in John 5. I love the way John communicates the gospel because it is almost outside of a Jewish perspective. He communicates it in a way that anybody should be able to get it. If you ask me on another day, Eric, tell me about salvation. You know, I might use the Passover lamb as, as an example. I might use the Egyptian plagues and the deliverance of uh, Israel out of Egypt. I might talk to you about some things, that, shadows and types in the Levitical law. I might talk to you about Isaac and him being a promised son. I might talk to you about all kinds of things. Jesus shared salvation in the most simple, basic terms that occurred in the garden. You're in death. You need to get in life. And this is how. Hear it in Genesis, or John 5. John 5, verse 19. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The Son can do nothing by Himself. He can do only what He sees His Father doing. Jesus did not take it upon Himself to, in His wisdom, choose anything. He only did what He saw the Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all He does. 
Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. You have left Adam's rule and entered into Jesus' rule. I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come. Get that. There is a time that is yet to come and a time that has now come when? When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. The time is coming, that's the resurrection yet to come, and has now today in his hearing, in his presence being fulfilled. You're hearing it, it's happening to you spiritually and will yet happen to you physically. For the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. He has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear the voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself but him who sent me. Skip over to verse 36. Hear how else he says this to the same group of people. I have a testimony weightier than that of John for the very work the Father has given me to finish and which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent me. And the Father has sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form nor does his word dwell in you for you do not believe the one he sent. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. In Jesus is life. But how? Why? That's the gospel message is that we're in death and we need the life that is in Jesus. The underdog part of the story is that for 4,000 years, man had striven, if that's such a word, forgive me, I don't know, has strived to escape death and was unable. For 4,000 years, the mortality rate for all human beings was 100%. No matter what we did, we could not overcome the enemy that came upon us through Adam and Eve's bad choices. Until one man came. And he begins telling us, no, if you believe what I'm telling you, if you let me be a substitute for your worldly wisdom, remember that was the Corinthians 1 verse that we read, then you have crossed from death to life. Well, what gave him the right to do that? Turn to Luke 4. We're about to wrap this up. You remember? Eve and Adam, Eve then she came and presented it to Adam were tempted by the devil. And basically she saw something was desirable for gaining wisdom. And so she went after it because she wanted to be like God. 
The Bible says Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. Therefore, he was raised so that his name would be above every name. That's a whole other teaching. We've done it here. But listen to how this plays out in the temptation. This is Luke 4. Contrary to Adam and Eve who were in a, a Hawaiian tropical paradise type setting, our king came, did not eat for 40 days and 40 nights, and faced the devil himself, not through a snake, in an open wilderness. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. Incidentally, everything that Jesus is going to quote here comes from the first few chapters of Deuteronomy. Every Jewish kid memorized these by the time they were Judah's age. Especially Deuteronomy 6, 7, and 8. These, these were all things that they knew from the very beginning. Jesus did not invent some brand new way to overcome the enemy. The enemy shows up. Jesus has been led by the Spirit, placed in a position where he is vulnerable. He has not eaten. He's got to be tired. He's got to be hungry. And the devil himself shows up and says, Hey, if you're the Son of God, do this. And Jesus hits him with the word right between the eyes. Contrast this with Eve. She began to contemplate. The devil says, Did God really say? Well, you know, I don't know. Let's talk about it for a while. Jesus responds with God's word. Does the devil give up? Not at all. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus knew he would get those things if he resisted. And it was for the joy set before him that he endured everything that it took to get there. But the devil's giving him an easy way out now. Adam gave it all to me. You're here to right what Adam wrong. I'll just give it to you if you'll submit to me. How did Jesus answer? Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Both times we've quoted Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 8.3 and then Deuteronomy 6.13. Things that any child would know. The worldly wisdom's there. And it presents itself through the mouth of Satan. It says, hey, look, here's another way to do what you want to accomplish. All you've got to do is this. And by the Spirit of God, he responds with God's Word. And he hits the devil again right between the eyes. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written... Now the devil's going to quote the word to him. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. That's Psalm 91. Now was that God's word? Absolutely. Did it apply to that setting? Not at all. You beware of people that quote God's word to you for their, their gain. Jesus answered. It says he did not even respond to the scripture he didn't argue about what Psalm 91 applied to, didn't apply to, no theological debates. He simply answers. It says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, we're in Deuteronomy 6:16. 6, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him 
until an opportune time. What could be more opportune than having a man alone in the desert, not having eaten for 40 days and 40 nights? When he's got a couple of disciples close to him that he loves, and you can use one of them to kill him. That was the more opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. The thing that Jesus did that no man before him had ever done is he totally submitted his will 100% to the Father at all times. So much so that his actions were only the actions that the Father had shown him he needed to do. His words were only the words that the Father had told him to speak. You know who else was supposed to be like that? Adam and Eve. They were supposed to be doing the task the Father gave them to do, relying on Him to show them what was right and wrong. That's exactly what Jesus did. But where they were unsuccessful and 4,000 years of human history had been unsuccessful, Jesus was successful. Now, there are a lot of theological reasons for that. He was the offspring of a woman and a, and a, a promise. There was no sin nature in Him. All of those things. It still does not mean that He didn't have the opportunity to sin. He did. And yet He stood up to the enemy and there's one phrase and it's called, in the power of the Spirit. It's the same way that you overcome today. In the power of the Spirit. In John 14:30, he says, The world must learn that I love the Father, and I do exactly what He commands of me. The prince of this world is coming, but He has no hold on me. The prince of the power of the air actually came to deal with Jesus personally in the desert, and He, he could not whip Him. Then He came to deal with Him through Romans and angry Jews. And he killed him. He bit him on the heel. And it looked like he was dead. And it was over. And I'm sure he rejoiced. And like some of those old Carmen songs sing about, Ron Canoli songs sing about, about the three days he was in the grave, it looked as if he had gained a victory. When suddenly the one who had been bitten on the heel was standing on his head, standing on the serpent's head. What he has allowed us to do, and I need to wrap this up, in Second Peter 1, is participate in something. Second Peter 1.3 His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in His divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Where Eve participated in the corruption that was already in the world from the creation, the rebellion that was already there caused by her evil desires, we now have a way to participate in a divine nature that will give you every power you need to enter into life. All you have to do is tap into it. When I preached this message the last time that I did, I took a glove and we stood it up and it was a, a goatskin glove. It showed how it had no strength in and of itself. Any which way the wind pushed it, it fell. Forward, backward, side to side. That's what mankind was like before the enemy. It stood, it looked like a hand. It looked like God's hand. But when he pushed on it, it fell right over. He got so used to pushing on it and falling over at his will through 60 generations that he was absolutely shocked and knocked flat on his back the first time God reached his hand into that by his spirit, he filled Jesus, the glove, and he couldn't push it over. This was a, a huge surprise to him. 
He caught the wise in his craftiness. So much so that he was so used to attacking this thing that looked like a glove or a man that he didn't realize God was actually in him. So that when he killed him, he was guilty before all of the heavens of trying to kill God. Open rebellion. Now God is using us who participate in his divine nature to speak that same resounding message. If you rely on God's spirit wholeheartedly, you cannot be beaten. We are participators in the divine nature, and we're out of time, too. I want you to think of these things, okay, as, as you go on today. Actually, we're going to watch a football game later today. The whole world's crowded around to watch this because they want to see a competition. They'll love it if in the fourth quarter one team comes from way behind and beats the other one because they're innately drawn to it. What the world needs to hear is not that you're victorious always. Not that you're perfect and have no sin. The world needs to hear that you're just like them. You're an underdog who is often pressed down by sin. And yet when you rely on God, you can come from way behind and still win the struggle. In fact, we're all doing it. And that even though you look like somebody who is defeated, you are going to get the victory. That's what they need to hear. They don't need to hear that you're perfect. They could never relate to that. The reason the Father did not come down in some kind of angelic uh, form, splendorous in every way, is because man needed another man that he could relate to. And it had been promised that a man would come from the woman. Here's a couple stories from Israel's history. And I had intended to read them. We don't have time. In Judges 16, all of these have to do with Israel and the Philistines. And maybe a whole other message that I'll teach. I'm not sure. You see Samson in a temple to Dagon. He's blind because he has screwed up. He's chained because he has screwed up. And yet blind and chained in the temple to a foreign God, when he asked God for mercy, God came over him in such power that he collapsed that temple. He broke down the fortress of the foreign God and he did more good for God in his death than all of his life. So it doesn't matter whether you're chained and blind you still have the potential to do good for God. In 1 Samuel 5, you see the ark of God before Dagon, this towering, menacing figure. In his temple, in Dagon's temple, they set this ark, this little wooden box, not much bigger than three feet by five feet. Three feet high, five feet long. Okay, And it sat there. And when they put it there, they left, they came back, Dagon had fallen. They set Dagon back up, walked out, Come back the next day, Dagon was fallen with his head and his hands broken off. You don't need a thing to help you. You don't need great size. You don't need great strength. You don't need to be in your fortress with the presence of God. Whatever your giant is, it will fall and God will break off its head and its hands for you if you rely on his spirit. Where you had no chance to win, you were the underdog, God will cause you to be victorious. In 1 Samuel 17, you have the most famous underdog story of all time. You have little bitty David facing great big Goliath. David said, you know what? This uncircumcised Philistine will be like a lion or a bear, and I've triumphed over them. How is it that nobody in Israel will go out and face him? I'll go. All kind of men gave him practical worldly wisdom about the armor he should wear and why he was there and all those things. You know what he relied on? The Spirit of God, and that's what he said. He took five stones with him. We say five is the number of grace, and I've taught that. You know what else? Goliath had brothers. 
He didn't care whether he had to go whip Goliath and every brother and every other Philistine. He was going to do what God called him to do. And when Goliath stood there opposing him, telling him, you're just a boy and I will feed you to the birds of the air today. Do you know what David did? Because he believed God was with him, he ran towards the Philistine and his armor bearer. It was not enough this guy was nine feet tall, a champion and a fighting man from his youth. He also had somebody there to protect him. And not only did David throw a stone, sink in his head and knock him down, he cut off his head and carried it around. You know why? He wanted to show all the other Israelites, this is what happens to the enemies of God. He said, well, what does any of that have to do with me? It doesn't matter whether you're chained and blind and in the temple to a foreign God, whether you're outsized, outmanned, and have nothing with you but the presence of God. If you will run to meet your Goliaths in life, God will knock them down for you and you can cut off their heads as a testimony to every other Christian that they ever try to face down. I don't have to face heroin or cocaine or any of those things to know that God is able to overcome it in an individual. You know why? I've already faced the lion and the bear. That's not my Goliath. It's someone else's. But I am certain that my God conquers Goliaths for us who depend on Him. So the message today is people are going out to watch a football game. Incidentally, what would football be if it had no air in it? That wouldn't be a good game, would it? You're worthless as a, a display before God to these heavenly powers if you do not have His Spirit in you. You know, you're like an empty football. Your purpose, your very purpose for existing is not there. But what a testimony we have with us if we take into our lives at every time this idea that no matter what I face, God will knock it down, cut off its head and its hands if I run to meet it. This is why Hebrews says we're not among those who shrink back and are destroyed. We're among those who advance. That's why Jesus said forceful men lay hold of the kingdom. That's not because you're bullies. It's not because you're mean. It's because where no one else will love someone, where no one else will give someone else hope, you will because you've been there, you have been the underdog, kicked around, defeated, and you are feeling Jesus rise you to the head of the table. We do not minister to people from a condescending standpoint. Jesus never did. We should be ministering to people around us by crawling into the gutters with them and helping them out the same way Jesus has helped us out. And it does not matter what the Goliath is. It will fall before you. I want you to keep something in mind as we go throughout this week. Your very purpose, if no one else is watching you, the heavenly powers are. They're watching to see what you do. And they're learning a message from your life. I want the angels to be astonished at the obedience and at the love that I show for God. I want the uh, enemies that are out there to take note of my life. So that when I'm standing facing someone who is demon-possessed, like in Acts 19, they say, well, Jesus I know and Paul I've heard about. You know, I, I want to be in that group that they've heard about because I'm taking their territory. Guys, we want to make an impact. And the way to do that is to reach down, be willing to associate with those of low character and give them the hope that God will knock down their Dagon. God, by His presence, will, even if they've lost their eyes to sin, will cause them to be victorious though they die. That God, if they will run towards their enemy, will cut off His head for them. 
That is the gospel message. And it is very much the story of an underdog. So don't be surprised when it looks like you can't overcome and you can't win. God set it up this way on purpose so that it would appeal to people. He didn't choose those that were on top. He chose us who were underneath. Stand up. We'll pray.